the Broadway Hour. I'm Stuart Klein, your host for the Broadway Hour. Stay tuned for what I think will be an invigorating hour all about the theater. Here on AM 93 WPAT, every Monday night from 6 to 7 p.m. Brought to you by Sheraton New York Hotel and Towers and Chemical Bank. Hello and welcome to the Broadway Hour. I'm Stuart Klein, your host for the next hour of Broadway news, Broadway interviews, Broadway songs, and Broadway gossip, and much ado about Off-Broadway, too. We're coming to you from the Sheraton New York Hotel and Towers at 53rd Street overlooking scenic 7th Avenue, where we have our live taping in the Lobby Court Lounge. You're invited to join us every Thursday afternoon for the taping between 4.30 and 6. We have a rather distinguished audience today and some very distinguished guests. Alan King. Jazz pianist Marion McPartland, who will be performing live here, and Michael Learned of the Sisters Rosenzweig. So stay tuned for the talk of Broadway, much Broadway music, and our trivia contest with a chance for you to win some excellent prizes. This is Stuart Klein on the Broadway Hour, and our first guest is known the world over as a brilliant comedian who starred in a number of films. But what some of you may not remember is that he is an accomplished stage actor who has starred in a couple of Broadway productions. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a genuine pleasure for me to introduce Alan King. Thank you, Thank you. Alan, welcome to the Broadway Hour. Thank you. I wouldn't have missed this in the world. I want to, I want to get even this evening for the 25 years of lousy reviews you gave me. We're off and cooking. <laughs> what do you mean, lousy reviews? I actually raved about Yes, you did. You did. Uh, guys and Dolls. No, you, The Impossible and Impossible Years. years. Impossible but, Years. But I did a film where I mentioned your name in the dialogue. I remember. <laughs> it was a film uh, that starred a, about a playwright who had a show. Al Pacino. And I remember it vividly. And my, I played uh, the uh, producer... Uh, something Bialystok or something, I remember, some funny name, but Israel Horowitz wrote it. It was called Author, Author. And you came running in in this scene <laughs> in the movie, and you said, it's a rave review from Klein. Klein. Well, someone said that. Someone yes. said, we got Stuart Klein. I said, Stuart Klein, I don't need. I need the New York Times. That was the line. Actually, actually what you said was... If I may correct you, All you right. said was, I don't care if Klein has an orgasm on the air. That's if we don't get a rave review from the Times, we're cooked. Yeah, well, I thought, this was, I thought this was public radio. That's why I didn't use the word orgasm. Thank you very much. <laughs> Alan, uh, before we talk about your Broadway career, uh, give me a little biography. Where biography? You, yeah, where are you from? Oh, good Lord. I'm from, uh, I was born on the Lower East Side of New York, very young. And uh, <laughs> I was a child of the Depression. It's if some if you put some piano music or violin music, you know, it's the it's the Irving Berlin story without the ASCAP rating. I grew up on the Lower East Side of New York, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I I danced on street corners and cellar clubs. Um, I spent very little time in school. My parents were very unhappy. I came from a very large family, seven boys, one girl. I was the youngest. Um, I won some several, I won a couple of amateur shows, and then at the age of 12, I came in second on the Major Bowes national radio show, 
It's hard to believe for your listeners, but Major Bowles was bigger than Ed McMahon's. Hard to believe that. <laughs> when you uh, won... And then Ma I went on tour. When you won Major Bowles... What? I came in second. All I lost right. to a guy called Al the Musical Plumber from Poughkeepsie, New York, <laughs> who played a musical saw and a toilet plunger. It came in first. <laughs> so you can imagine how good I was to come in second. What did you do on the Major Bowles Tower? I was 12 years old. I sang the song of the Depression and... Ragged clothes, I sang, Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? Once I built the railroad, made it run, made it run. There wasn't a dry eye in any B'nai organization within the three states. <laughs> Alan, how did you become an actor? How did you get started in show business after Major Bowl? Well, uh, it comes from my background, from my childhood. One of eight, I was always looking for attention. You know, I, I had a lot, my parents had enough love for everybody in the family and everybody in the neighborhood. But attention was the thing I craved. And so I became the class clown and singing and dancing on street corners for attention and for a few pennies. And so I, you know, I never, I just never thought I'd be anything else but uh, in, in some form of show business. Uh, Jolson, of course, and Cantor and the Marx Brothers. I grew up watching, uh, you know, films, listening to radio. And uh, my parents took me to see uh, the Yiddish theater when I was very young. We used to go to the public theater and saw the great Schilkraut, you know, and Muni Weisenfreud, who then became Paul, Paul Muni. In fact, one time, you know, sometimes you're caught by your parents doing something terrible, you know, biologically terrible. Uh, my mother saw me one time, walked in, and I was in a mirror doing a scene, and my mother shouted across the three rooms that were called uh, railroad flats, because one room followed another. And my mother hollered out to my father, Bernie, look what we got here, another Paul Muni. <laughs> <laughs> So I have the theater. Uh, it's uh, not that I come from a show business family, but I come from a, uh, from parents that love the theater. You know, love music and love the theater. When you began, was it your dream to become an actor, a star on Broadway, a star in the movies? No. Well, I didn't know what I want. I know, I don't know where it would take me, but I, you know, it, when I got my first laugh, that was it. You know, it's uh, it's a drug. You know. And uh, you don't need steam heat if you got a spotlight on you. And especially considering my background, it was, uh, I was somebody. My father always used to say to me, you got to be a somebody. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was my way out. So you started as a singer. Uh, well, a singer, impressionist, anything, you know. And uh, I think you gravitated very early to the Catskills, the Borscht Belt. Well, after I left Major Bowes, I toured for a year. Uh... I ended up uh, working one summer at the uh, Steel Pier in Atlantic City. I uh, legitimately, uh, I know the legend grows, but I was the uh, barker for the diving horse <laughs> on the boardwalk, the eighth wonder of the world, high atop the cruel Atlantic. Why anybody wanted to see a horse jump into the Atlantic Ocean for a quarter is beyond me, but listen, the Romans fed Jews to the lions. You know. <laughs> I, as a kid... Uh, I went down to Atlantic City all the time. I grew up in Philadelphia. Atlantic City was 60 miles away. Still is, you know. And uh, <laughs> I would spend the whole day at Steel Pier. It was the greatest attraction. My it was mom, a British show business. George Hammond, that was the man who owned it. He was right. an Arab and one of the most beautiful guys I ever knew. And they had a couple of movie theaters on that oh, uh, big pier. Band. I played there with Sinatra. There was, oh, they played the, there with Harry James. The Marine Ballroom. That's right. That was at the end, the of, the end of the steel pier. That's right. And then, obviously, uh, according to the script, uh, I went to the Catskill Mountains. I had a little uh, band. I was a drummer. 
in a small hotel. Small. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. Didn't how, even exist. How small was it? Yes. Uh, and uh, it was a you know it was a hotel with a lot of old Yiddish people, uh-huh. and what was happening is that uh, just before World War II, uh, they were bringing their children there, and the children were growing up, and uh, they didn't want to see Yiddish. We used to have Yiddish art companies, so I was the tumbler. I was screaming and carrying on, and uh, the management uh, was was the New Prospect Hotel, formerly Foreman and Gatkin. <laughs> and uh, they asked me to come back as the uh, comic the next year, and you know, and I guess I never looked back. How long did you do that, Al? I played the Catskill Mountains from the age of about fifteen. I still play the Catskill. I'm still, you know, I still every year I play Kutch's Country Club. Uh-huh. That's my, that's my great joy. Uh, I, I, you know, I started. I was the second comic at Grossinger's. Uh, Phil Foster was my boss, the late Phil Foster. I did it. I still do it. I mean, uh, it was the probably, not probably, it was the greatest training ground uh, any young boy or young man could have. Uh, we, did, uh, we did eight different shows a week. We did uh, guest night and we did drama and we did uh, burlesque bits, you know. So I, I got, this was an incredible training ground. Who were the comics that you saw there who, who influenced you? Well... I would, well, I was influenced by uh, a lot of uh, the, the international, you know, in films uh, and radio, Jack Benny and, of course, Bob Hope. But I think my first great influence was Milton Berle. He played right here, down the street at the Capitol Hotel. And I used to go to see Milton at the Low State, and uh, I, wanted to be, uh, I wanted to be crazy like Milton, you know. He was the... Uh, he was the, the the epitome of, of what I wanted to be. And I did a lot of, and I was billed at one time as Milton's protege. And uh, he's very old now, you know. And, um, <laughs> and then I guess uh, right towards the end of the war, I was in Chicago. I was playing the State Lake Theater. And somebody told me that there was a comic at a club called the 500, uh, the, uh, no, I'll think of it in a minute, but the, uh, there was a comic with a big nose from Toledo, Ohio, called, named Danny Thomas. And I went to see him, and he wasn't doing the shticks. He wasn't falling down and rolling up his pants and doing the Jerry Lesters and the Burls and all that. He was telling stories rather than the Youngman kind of one-liners, you know. And I remember vividly that I, I knew that I, as a young man, I knew that I was watching something very important. That I thought this is where comedy was going to go. So, as I said, uh, Danny Thomas was a great influence. And uh, I was very fortunate. You know, I worked at Leon and Eddie's right down the street here uh, where I was able to perform on Sunday nights, celebrity nights, before Jack Benny and Bob Hope and George Burns. Benny became a great influence in my life. Uh, not so much the performer as the man. I was really crazy about Jack Benny. He was a wonderfully kind man, you know, and took an interest in me and... Used to call me after the Sullivan shows, you know, from California and say, you did good or you weren't so good. You know? mm-hmm. So I was very blessed uh, that I grew up in an era. I, I guess I'm, uh, I'm only 66 years old, but I've been in this business, you know, forever. And I, I was probably one of the few left that made the crossover from the Catskills to vaudeville to nightclubs. I worked for Benny Siegel. Bugsy Siegel. Well, no, Benny Siegel. Only the newspapers called him Bugsy. You know. His what children called him Mr. Siegel. 
And if anyone did call him Bugsy. No, nobody called him Bugsy. Not to his face, did <laughs> We'll be back uh, to talk about Alan's career in films and the theater on Broadway right after this break. We're back on AM 93 WPAT. This is the Broadway Hour. I'm Stuart Klein, and we're with Alan King, who just said we covered the first 30 years in eight minutes. Right. Let's do the next 30 years. I don't know if we got another eight minutes, but let's try. How did you uh, make the uh, leap from the Catskills to film and theater? Well, I, I love the theater. I mean, uh, and I still do. Uh, one of my early heroes was Sam Levine. I knew I was never going to become Olivier. And so you, you find that you gravitate to, to stars or talented people that you think you may be able to emulate eventually. And Sam was so good. I mean, he was the best Broadway comedian in the tradition of including the Burt Laws, you know. And I had I'd been in stock and things, you know, but I was privileged to see the second night of Guys and Dolls, the original Guys and Dolls. Right. And I sat there with my wife. I married 47 years. And I turned to my wife and I said, that's what I want to do. That, And I was already, you know, doing quite well in showbiz. And I saw Sam come out, you know, and uh, Robert Alden, the original... The original Nathan that, Detroit. He was the original Nathan, with all due respects, and I played it 400 times around the world, you know. But I said, That's, that was what I wanted to do. And eventually, and I don't know, remember the year, but I did the revival at the City Center. City Center. But I had uh, Sam Levine and, of course, the great Zero Mustel. Uh -huh. I just adored they were incredibly talented people. Zero never reached his potential, although, of course, he, he capped his career with uh, Tevye, you know, and, uh, of course, in Fiddler. And uh, again, uh, every time, everybody wants me to play Tevye, now that, now that I have a beard and I'm old and Jewish. Uh, Alan, did you know, you mentioned uh, Sam Levine as Nathan Detroit. Did you know that he could not sing at I'll, all? I'll tell you the best story about, about when I played Sam was the most angry man that ever walked. He, he, do you know that I, pro I produced a play on Broadway called The Impossible Years, and I played in it for uh, about a year and a half. And uh, it was my play. And I gave you a good review. Yes, you, yes, you did. Thank you. And, uh, and uh, one, yes, I remember. <laughs> and, uh, and, the, and you know, I couldn't get anyone to replace me. There were stock companies, not national companies. Everybody did it, you know, from Derwood Kirby to what you name it. They were doing it all over. Burl did it. But I couldn't get anybody to come on Broadway. And then finally, Sam was in the twilight of his career, and uh, I begged Sam to do it. And he said, on one condition, if I would direct him in the part and then never see him do it on stage for at least two weeks. And so my hero, I ended up directing... In impossible years. And uh, Sam, uh, and you know, Sam had a wonderful movie career, film yes, career. Yes, you know. great character. And uh, so that, I guess, uh, my whole life uh, was uh, involved in theater. Alan, uh, if you haven't picked it up yet, uh, there is a marvelous biography out of Frank Lesser, the mm. uh, 
you, that's the story. I, I got lost. Somebody take notes. <laughs> so I remember where I am. My, my mouth runs ahead of my ears. Uh, when I did Guys and Dolls on Broadway, on, uh, at the city center, Frank Lesser came to see the show. Uh-huh. And when the show was, when it was over, Frank, I had never met Frank Lesser. I was such a fan, of course. And he came into my dressing room. And I had one of these ro- dressing rooms that was used for chorus, you know, and there was an upright piano. And Frank Lesser was very complimentary. And he said to me, you sing very well, young man. And I said, well, thank you. He said, you know, we wrote six songs for Nathan in the original. And Sam Levine could not sing a note. He said, the, in fact, he ended up with just Sumi, which he spoke. He said, let me play you a song. And in my dressing room on an upright piano, Sam, uh, Frank, Frank sang a song that he wrote when Nathan Detroit and Sky Masters and Meet for the first time, you know, and he's gonna, he says, any girl, you know, and I don't want to go through, I'm sure your audience is familiar with it. And he, he did a song, he, he sang a song called I'm Traveling Light. That was kind of a vaudeville song that Sky and Nathan would do, Traveling Light. And I'll never forget it. But first of all, I have Frank Lesser sing a song that was never used. Well, you got an incredible compliment because Frank Lesser was a manic about singers and especially the way he sung his songs. And when he discovered, as a matter of fact, when he discovered to his horror at the outset of Guys and Dolls that Sam Levine could not sing, he actually wrote a piece of business to help Sam. When Sam sings Sue Me, Lesser discovered that Sam Levine invariably hit the wrong note on the word Sue Me. So Frank Lesser wrote into this song a scale. Hire a lawyer and sue me, sue me. The hire a lawyer and sue me was a scale that he wrote into the song just to help can, Levine hit a right I note. Can, I can spend an hour just talking about Guys and Dolls because I had played, uh, and then I directed it in tab shows and everything, but I never played it with Robert Alder, who I worked in burlesque with Bob Alder. And... Uh, I played it with every Sky Masters as you could imagine, including Johnny Ray with a hearing aid. Okay? No, it's the truth. In Dallas, I played it with Johnny Ray, Tony Ben, name it. But I never played it with Bob Ola. Bob Ola's screen career had started to, you know, uh, diminish. And he moved to uh, Rome. And I hadn't seen Bob Ola in years. And I went into a restaurant. And a uh, crowded restaurant. And you know how you look at someone's back and you know it's who it is? And we were waiting for a table. I said, where are you going? I said, there's Bob Baller. She says, where? In this crowded bar with his then new Italian wife. And I walked. I didn't even say hello to him. I put my hand on his shoulder and I said, Sky, how goes it? He turns around and says, Nathan, you old son of a gun. And we did four pages of dialogue <laughs> without saying hello. So I told his son that I finally got to play a piece of... Nathan and Sky with his father. Alan, you mentioned a minute ago that you were in burlesque. What yes. did you do in burlesque? Anything I could. <laughs> and anybody else I could. No. no, burlesque was chased out of New York by Mayor LaGuardia. Right. And it moved over to uh, Jersey City. To Minsky. Hudson. Well, Minsky's. All burlesque was chased out. And although, when you think about it, Fiorella LaGuardia would have been one of the great burlesque comedians, you know. <laughs> uh, and I worked the Hudson Theater in um, 
Union City, and then the Melody Club, which was a burlesque nightclub. And then I played the uh, Gaiety Theater of Montreal for about five months. So I had a little bit of that, you know, who's got pockets in all those pits, you know, Niagara Falls. Alan, I know you've done at least two shows on Broadway. I don't know if you've done more. You did Guys and Dolls at City Center. You did The Impossible Years. Uh, I, I did others, but I was the 11th Ensign Pulver when I was a kid, you know. So I, I was in a couple of things around New York. Uh, how do you look back on uh, those experiences? I mean, were they pleasurable? And if so, would you ever consider doing it again? Well, right now I have trouble walking upstairs. <laughs> and uh, I, um, I really miss it. You know, to do Broadway, when you have a, a career in television, a career in nightclubs where they keep throwing money at you, it becomes difficult to give it all up, to go back to the boards, isn't right. it? But now that I'm old and very rich, <laughs> uh, I, I'm very seriously, uh, this is not an announcement, but I, for the last six months, I have been searching and working for, uh, to do so. I'd like to go back to Broadway. What a treat that would be. I really, I, I'm not to do a one-man show, you know, uh -huh. a la Jackie Mason. Right. Like that, because that, I'm, I, have, I really don't feel I have anything to prove. A play. But I'd like to do a play or a, a, I don't know what it would be. I did, a, I did a workshop, which was a great experience with Jerry Robbins for a while. And it, it never materialized. But uh, everybody said to me, why are you doing this? I said, I'll be able to tell my great-grandchildren that I worked with Jerome Robbins. And that's no easy task, that's working was, with Jerome Robbins. It was for me. It was pleasurable. I know the repu Jerry's reputation is quite unique in a sense. But no, I, I worked with uh, Jerry Robbins on this uh, piece in work for about, uh, I don't know, three or four months on and off. And it was great. It was a great experience for me. Well, I say this, uh, I'm not uh, trying to curry favor, but Alan, you certainly impressed me with your range. Uh, you were in a movie uh, recently, last year, with Robert De Niro. Oh, my, yeah. <laughs> and you played the heavy, the gangster, and you were scary. Well, I worked for, this, for these guys for so many years, it was so easy for me you know, to play it. You know. I grew up... I grew up uh, in the old days, a lot of the, most of the nightclubs are owned by the so-called wise guys and the mob guys. Right. And uh, I was never, uh, I never found them to be, uh, you know, I never wanted to be like them, but I, but, I also, but I found fascinating. Great characters, you know, more so than even Runyon. These were real people. And there was a line, they were very, I was a kid, and they was, I, was, they, I was amusing, you know. But... Uh, I remember looking into the eyes of some of the, I, I was fortunate or unfortunate enough to know some of the tough guys around New York. And there was a certain thing. They had dead eyes. I always remember that. When you looked into their eyes, even though they smiled, they never smiled, they grinned, you know. But their eyes were always dead. So when uh, Erwin Winkler, who directed uh, Night in the City and the uh, Bobby De Niro, who's played, you know, no one plays gangsters or anything he's, better than he's, Bobby. He's, he's the best. He's the best. And we talked about it, and Bobby says, well, how do you see this character, Boom Boom Grossman? And I said, dead eyes. And De Niro said, that's it. <laughs> Say no more. 
Say no more. Last week on the Broadway Hour, Eli Wallach and Ann Jackson were here. They're just wonderful. I bring it up because Eli said he grew up in the Red Hook section of Brooklyn in Little Italy, and his neighbors directly across the street were two young men named Tony and Albert Anastasia. Well, you know, this hotel that we're sitting in right now was the Americana Hotel originally, and there was a little piano lounge over there. And I came in one night, and there was a young man, I'm not a young man, an aging man, playing piano. And he looked at me, and I looked at him, and his name was Roger Seale. And he and I played in the band together when we were very young. And Roger Steele's brother was Pittsburgh Phil Strauss from Murder Incorporated, who died in the electric chair. And... Uh, they family changed their name from, you know, Strauss to Steele. And right in this lobby, right here, many years ago, he and I reminisced. And uh, I remember seeing a Pittsburgh Phil Strauss, you know. Uh, don't forget, I go back to A.B. Rellis, you know, and the Half Moon <laughs> Hotel in Brooklyn and all. This is Murder uh, Incorporated, right, folks, if uh, we're getting beyond you. And Lepke Buchholder. And we talked about i remember as a kid seeing uh, pittsburgh phil strauss come in, uh, get out of a walk out of a pool room which was a bookmaker place and uh, with a big tan kind of george raff you know camel hair wrap around coat and i must have been about eight years old and uh, get into this big la salad was <laughs> and I said, boy, and the first coat I ever bought you know, was a wraparound coat. I wasn't a gangster. I was a, I was a young comedian. But those were, in fact, in De Niro's new picture, which is about a young boy. A Bronx tale. Yeah, Bronx tale. I was so taken by the film, it brought me back to my childhood where this young kid sees Sonny, the gangster, yes. as a hero. And I, I thought about my youth and looking at... Uh, at these, you know, who then ended up as killers. I didn't know they were killers at the time. They were, I wanted to be like... Alan, if you God had... To, you, is there any single role... Not new, but any single role in any single play yeah, that well, you've I've always would, wanted to play? Yeah. I've always wanted to play... I won't do it because of zero, but a Tevye has always been something that, you know, but it's so physical and so... But I've always wanted to play. I never will. Why not? I, well, you can sing. Well, I sing better than Zero, actually. But uh, <laughs> Frank Lester told me that. <laughs> no, he said I sang better than Sam Levine, which really wasn't a compliment. Who doesn't sing better yeah. than Sam? I, uh, I won't do it, of course, on Broadway, because I, uh, this is a big ego thing. But uh, somewhere, whether it be in the hills of Maine or somewhere, before I go out, I'm going to do Willie Loman. My God. Yeah, because I've always thought that there was, I know this is a terrible thing to say, and it's my favorite play, American play of, of, of ever. It's, uh, and Dustin did so well, but of right. course, Lee J, you know, and Lee I saw J. everybody do it from Gene Lockhart, you know, Arthur mm -hmm. Miller. I saw more people play Willie Loman than Arthur Miller, <laughs> including Klugman and Marty Balsam in Florida. But I have always, I was so identified with Willie. You know, with the character of Willie Loman, my father, everybody's father. So I, I'll, I think I will do that somewhere. Well, if there's a producer out there listening. I'm a producer. Alan King wants to do a Broadway show. No, I don't want to do it. I said I won't do it on Broadway. I don't have that kind of guts. 
Well, I'm, all right, you, but it doesn't have to be Death of a Salesman. You said you're looking for a show to do on Broadway. Yes, I, I'd like to do the, the Brothers Rosenzweig. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, Alan, it's been an absolute pleasure for me to have you here. Thank you. Thank Ladies you. and gentlemen, Alan King. Thank you. Here's the Broadway Hour update brought to you by Tatinger Champagne, the official champagne of the Broadway Hour. Frank Rich will be replaced as the chief drama critic of The Times, effective January 1st. The Times has announced that Rich, at that time, will become a columnist for the op-ed page. No word on his successor on the aisle. Let me note that I, for one, am sorry to see him leave the theater beat. Frank is an excellent critic who was unjustly accused of destroying the theater. It's not the critics who produce lousy shows on Broadway, but the Broadway producers. Speaking of critics, they laid some lumps on a couple of incoming Broadway shows trying out on the road. The Kentucky Cycle, the six-hour epic starring Stacy Keach, opened in Washington to generally favorable reviews. Variety called it rich, absorbing drama. But the Washington Post ripped it as, quote, trivial and mediocre and said its ideas were tired, smug, and familiar. And Paper Moon, the new musical based on the movie that starred Ryan and Tatum O'Neill, got lukewarm reviews when it opened at the Paper Mill Playhouse in Milburn, New Jersey. Variety called it an engaging prospect, but noted that it has severe second-act-itis. And speaking of reviews, a couple of humble opinions from yours truly. The Madness of George III, the acclaimed London play, is just about done in by the terrible acoustics at the cavernous Brooklyn Academy of Music. And In Persons, the new show starring Eli Wallach and Ann Jackson, is absolutely wonderful. The Wallachs are pure gold as they enact scenes from their old plays, and they relate delicious anecdotes. Example, Eli says when he and Ann played Shaw's major Barbara, the director, Charles Lawton, told Eli on the first day of rehearsal, quote, you are a superb actor, but... I want none of your Stanislavski crap. <laughs> and I've edited that sentence severely. In person, starring the Wallachs is nonstop fun. Don't miss it. Some other theater notes. The Hal Prince production of Showboat, starring Bobby Morris as Captain Andy, Elaine Stritch as his wife, and Lonette McKee as Julie, starts performances tomorrow night in Toronto. She Loves Me, the delicious revival of the Bach Harnick musical, reopens Thursday at the Brooks Atkinson. A slew of new plays open this week off-Broadway, including The Fiery Furnace, starring Julie Harris at Circle Rep, The Eye of the Beholder, starring Kim Hunter at the Judith Anderson Theater, and Sophistry, directed by Don Scardino at Playwright Horizon. Finally, Cats starts its 12th year on Thursday, and Cats, according to a press release, to date has gone through 4,000 knee pads, 21,000 makeup brushes, and 36,000 condoms. No, 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 no. The condoms are used to wrap body mics. We'll be back with jazz pianist Marion McBartland after this. 
I am absolutely delighted to welcome our next guest here. She's an old friend. She's a great jazz pianist and an equally great ambassador of jazz. Here live at the piano, Marion McPartland. Thanks, Stuart. It's great to see you. It's been an age. It's, it's just wonderful it's, to be here. It's delicious to see you. Marion, what are you going to do at the piano? Oh, how about something uh, I think everybody knows. This one's called Take the A Train. I've heard of that one. You're on. Okay. And that was wonderful. Marion will be back later in the program and we'll chat with her coming up shortly. I'm Stuart Klein and with me is an acclaimed guest. According to a recent poll, America's all-time favorite family drama on television 
was the Waltons. And our next guest became a national icon as the mother on that show, Olivia Walton. She's now starring on Broadway in the smash comedy, The Sisters Rosenzweig. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Lerner. <laughs> Thank you, Stuart. What a nice introduction. Welcome, welcome. It's Thank delightful you. to see you. Uh, at one point in the Waltons, Michael, uh, you suddenly developed tuberculosis. <laughs> what yes. caused the onset of that disease? Um, ultimate boredom, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I, got, I got tired of pouring coffee and passing the salt. So uh, the kids had sort of grown up, you know, and there was really not that much need for so, Olivia uh, to be around anymore. You were anxious to get out of the show, and you suddenly developed a dread disease. I de yes, instead of killing me off, they were kind enough to send me away. And I can never remember whether it was a sanitarium for crazy people or a sanatorium for tuberculosis <laughs> patients. But anyway. How long did you do the Waltons? I did it for, I think I was with it for uh, eight years. One season I was there, I just did eight shows. Well, it certainly was very kind mm -hmm. to you. I mean, it, Oh, it certainly was. And uh, I have very warm and loving memories of it. Um, w in fact, we're going to do a reunion. What is that? Did you know that? We're, um, it, it'll be the first one, and we're shooting it um, in October for Thanksgiving. And this will be on television? Yes. Uh -huh. It'll be a two-hour. Is the movie. whole uh, family coming back? The whole gang, including um, dear Will Gear, who's passed away, but they have a, a darling little thing with a picture that they do, so he's going to be in it, too. And John Boy. And John Boy will be there. Yes. there, were, there All was grown a, up, John Mann now. Well, uh, John Boy Mann uh, just received some incredible reviews doing Shakespeare D uh, down did. in Washington. I was thrilled to read them. He's one of our major actors, Richard. I think he's, I, 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 in a way, I wish he wasn't always associated with the Waltons because he's a brilliant actor. There was a time uh, at the height of the Waltons when there was a slew of John Boy jokes going around. <laughs> I think they're still going around, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, you know what? I don't know. I don't know any of the jokes. No, and if I did, I wouldn't tell them. Uh, Michael, let me ask you a banal question. How did you come to be called Michael? I love the fact that you said banal. I had a, I had such a fight with a husband of mine because I said it's not banal, it's banal, and we went into this whole thing. And of course, we he went to a dictionary, and it is banal. Well, I'm glad as to well hear as, that. <laughs> as well as banal is also correct, though. You can either one is, okay. is they're equally correct. Oh, banal, banal. You so, say banal. I say, <laughs> I say banal. How did you He's, get to be called Michael? My um, my father was asked that the other night at Sardi's on the opening night of, of Sisters Rosens, our opening night of Sisters Rosenzweig, and he said, "Well, had uh, had we had a son, we would have called him Caleb, but as we had a girl, we decided to call her Michael." Well, that you figure it out. Doesn't make any sense <laughs> of course at all. not. That's why I'm in the theater. <laughs> Where are you from, Michael? Well, I was born in Virginia and lived in Connecticut, and we moved to Austria when I was 11, and I lived Austria? there for a while in Austria. And what I went was to the, school uh, in England. What the circumstances of that? Well, my father worked for the CIA. Uh huh. Of course, I didn't know that then, but um, so that's what we were doing there. Okay, uh, we'll be back to talk about the Sisters Rosenzweig right after this break. We're back on the Broadway Hour here on AM 93 WPAT, and we're with Michael Learned. Michael, in the Sisters Rosenzweig, you play Sarah, the oldest of the sisters, who's a very successful banker. 
but a divorced mother who misses sex, she says. How did you prepare for the role of a woman who misses sex? <laughs> well, I've been away from my husband since the show started, so it's not that difficult. Actually, he's, uh, it's been great because he's been able to visit quite uh, frequently. But. Uh, speaking of sex, forgive me, uh, in the show you play Kissy Face with uh, Hal Linden. That's right, much to the oohs and ahs of all the women in the audience. Is that a pleasurable experience? He's a great kisser, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't let my husband hear me say this. Uh, how is that to do a kissing scene on stage? Is it easy? Is it difficult? It's easy with Hal Linden. Uh-huh. But, um, no, I've, ne I've been lucky. I've never, only once have I ever had to sort of get really cozy with somebody on film that I didn't know, but... What was that? Um, that was years ago, and it was one of those things where you walk into the studio and jump in bed with some. Are you able to talk about it in but, public? Who is the actor? <laughs> no, it was in Canada, ah. and it was a long time ago, and it, it, was just a, it wasn't a naked scene or anything like that, so I've never had to do that. I, huh. I think that must be very difficult. Uh -huh. I've, I've read uh, that uh, sometimes uh, when actors get angry, at each other or having a pet uh, one actor is liable to uh, eat garlic or something before the kissing scene uh, oh I, I I never thought of that <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I trust that uh, if anything I've given up garlic which I love so I trust your relationship better watch out your relations with Howland and before the show are he's delightful he's delightful it's the whole cast. It's nice. How's the show going? It's doing very well. Doing very well. Audience seem to love it. Love it. And and as a cast, we get longer. Chemistry helps the show too. It's just a thrill to be in New York. Be on Broadway. I went back and saw it again. This is the last week with the new cast, including you. And I was delighted to discover that most of the laughs are still intact. It's very hard for at least for me to go back and see a show and knowing the laugh lines that are coming still be able to laugh again when they're so well done well um i think i think our show is a little different from the first and i respect dan sullivan for allowing that to happen in what he, respect? He did not, well, he didn't, Dan Sullivan, who directed the show, did not impose. It, it isn't as if we had to fit into the choreography of the first cast. He recognized that we are different people, that our chemistry is different, and he was very open to anything that we brought to it. And so in some respects, I think the show has um, deepened a little bit, and yet Linda's still as funny and wonderful, and, and the last Linda are there. Lavin. It's a wonderful... It's a wonderful play. Well, there was certainly one thing that was very obvious to me seeing it the second time around, and that is uh, taking nothing away from the original cast. The three sisters this time seem much more like a family than they were originally. Well, I think we've, we've tried for that. Not, not to compare anything, because um, I saw the first show, too, and I thought it was wonderful, and I mm -hmm. thought everyone in it was... In fact, I went back afterwards to Jane Alexander and said I was kind of hoping I could find something to improve on, but I couldn't. You know, I thought she was absolutely charming in it, and uh, she was very supportive to me through the whole thing. She's a very gracious woman. Um, but I do feel we do have a kind of sibling 
I like that, in that we sort of squabble and make up and do the things that sisters do. Michael, you're now on Broadway, starring in a smash hit play. Is this the ultimate for an actress? Do you miss television? Would you prefer something else? Well, I don't think in those terms, but it's certainly a wonderful experience. And um, I enjoy television, too. It's kind of the role, don't you think? Kind of. I've done a lot of television I have not enjoyed. Okay. So, but I think if it's a wonderful role on television, I enjoy television too. Right. It's so different. My background is theater and... Um, I know. I, I think a lot of people yeah. will be surprised to learn how much theater you did. You did, you did a great deal of Shakespeare in regional theater. Oh, yeah. And, I, and that's my first love because I love the words and I love the kind of material that you're dealing with usually when you're doing theater. Michael, we're getting the sign from the director. Any last words about the Sisters Rosenzweig? Why should this massive audience sitting here watching us go see the Sisters Rosenzweig? Because it's fun. Come and see us. Okay. Michael Learned, everybody. Thank you very, very much. It's trivia time, and this is a chance for you to win two tickets to She Loves Me, the delicious Bachharnik revival, and dinner for two at Streeter's New York Cafe here at the Sheraton. Here's this week's question. Everyone knows that Tony Randall and Jack Klugman were TV's odd couple, but the question is, who were the original Broadway stars of The Odd Couple? The first two actors to play it on Broadway. Think you know the answer? Send it to the Broadway Hour, AM 93 WPAT, 1396 Broad Street, Clifton, New Jersey, 07013. And get it in quickly. We'll announce the winner on our next show. Again, the winner gets two tickets to She Loves Me, plus dinner for two at Streeter's New York Cafe here at the Sheraton. Last week's question was, in Fiddler on the Roof, according to Yenta the Matchmaker, why were the shoemaker's daughter and Abram's son a perfect match? And Martin Rogoff of Smithtown, Long Island, knew the answer. The girl had poor eyesight, the guy was homely, and as Yenta the Matchmaker put it, the way she sees and the way he looks, it's a perfect match. Congratulations, Martin Rogoff of Smithtown. You win two tickets to Guys and Dolls and dinner for two at Streeter's here at the Sheraton. Uh, we're going back to Marion McPartland. Uh, Marion, you want to play first and then we'll chat some. What are you going to do? Oh, I don't know. What would you like? Shall I play something? Anything you like. All right. How about um, Willow Weep for Me? You got it. Okay. Marion McPartland, ladies and gentlemen, live here on the Broadway Hour.
beautiful Marion. Marion McFarland. Marion, uh, you've got a new CD out on the Concord Jazz label, In My Life, and it absolutely knocked me out. Especially, Marion, uh, it, it's so typical of you. You introduce a little-known saxophonist, Chris Potter, who is simply stupendous. Tell me about Chris. Well, I've known Chris Stewart since he was about 15. He comes from Columbia, South Carolina. And I was down there playing a concert with Jimmy and... Uh, Jimmy McPartland, McPartland, your late husband. And this kid came and sat in with us, and I was absolutely amazed. And uh, How old uh, is he? he was, well, at the time, he was 15. My God. And uh, his father was there. I said to his father, oh, we ought to get this guy with Woody Herman or somebody like that. And he says, not till he finishes school. <laughs> so anyway, he's finished school. He's now 22. He's been to the Manhattan School. And he's, he's uh, got a a CD out under his own name, so I wanted to get him on my record while before he gets so famous that I can't get him. So that's what happened. So now we've made two records. We did one live one in Concord at the festival, and uh, now he's gone with Steely Dan, so I probably never will <laughs> get to hire him again. Well, that's so gracious of you, Marianne, to introduce and support young talent, and you've done that in the past with some people who have turned out to be very well known. Well, I've always been lucky in, in finding or hearing people that, well, you probably remember uh, that I had Joe Morello on drums for, for a while. Yes, yes. Yes, I see somebody that knows about that. And uh, of course, Joe left my group to go with Dave Brubeck's group. As a matter of fact, just sitting here, it just makes me very nostalgic thinking about all the places that were around here when I used to work at the Hickory House, which was just across the street. And then we'd all go over to Charles Tavern, which of course is gone, and to Basin Street, which is where I saw Brubeck. Oh, well, I could just go on reminiscing. And uh, we used to meet here occasionally at the old Royal Box. Oh, well, that was so much fun with Jimmy and myself working I was looking for it, and of course I forgot the whole place has changed, but that was so wonderful being in the Royal Box, and, and actually we recorded in there, and that record that we made is coming out on a CD. Do you remember, Marion, uh, that was a long time ago, there used to be 1 a.m. shows at the Royal Box of the American? Well, you know, that was comparatively early to the one at the Hickory House. We would get through at 3 o'clock at the Hickory House, <laughs> and then we'd go to Birdland or someplace, which was even, even later. I don't know, but 1 o'clock, that... Uh, that was a very nice room. I loved playing in there, the Royal Box. It well, things have changed radically in New York City, but Marion McPartland, you're still in your prime and going on swingingly. It's absolutely great to see you and have you perform on the Broadway Hour. And don't forget, Marion McPartland's new CD, and it's really brilliant. It's on the Concord Jazz label. It's called In My Life. Marion McPartland, everybody. Thanks, Stu. Thank you. Thank you, Marion. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to the Broadway Hour. Thanks to our guests, Alan King, Michael Learned, and Marion McPartland. The Broadway Hour is here on AM 93 WPAT every Monday night from 6 to 7. 
I'd like to thank the sponsors of the Broadway Hour, Kennical Bank, the Sheraton New York Hotel and Towers, and Champagne Tatinger, the official champagne of the Broadway Hour. Thanks to our executive producer, Kate McGrath, and our engineer, Chris Breitfeld, and special thanks to all the folks at AM93 WPAT. Tune in next week when our guests will include producer Manny Eisenberg, drama critic Howard Kissel, Lainey Kazan, and musical director Don Pippen. This is Stuart Klein for the Broadway Hour. Good night and break a leg.